Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Junkie, addict, druggie. It's a real struggle to just have the right language. It's like the evolution of the language to give us a way to describe something that's happening without using our oppressor's words is fantastically liberating. This is Word Bomb, a TVO podcast. I'm Pippa Johnstone. And I'm Karina Palmatesta. Every episode, we talk about a word that's evolving in either its definition or its usage. And this week's word really hits that mark. It totally does. I feel like every time we're researching a word for an episode, suddenly that word is everywhere. But this one actually is. Mm -hmm, Yeah. We're talking about the word addict. People throw that word around super loosely. Like, think about how casually someone says, I'm addicted to coffee. Yeah, or uh, calls themselves a chocoholic. Mm -hmm. It's definitely overused in that hyperbolic way of words like awesome or amazing or obsessed. starving. Uh, Yeah, I say that all the time when I've gone about four hours without eating. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're talking about the word addict, but more generally, we wanted to dig into the language that we use when we talk about drug use. This one hits home in particular for me because I'm from Vancouver, which is the city in Canada that's been the hardest hit by the overdose crisis over the past three years. Mm -hmm. And I lived there for seven years, and it's definitely really sobering to hear the stats on what's happening there. Totally. The situation in BC right now is catastrophic, but we aren't seeing big enough changes in policy or funding or even an overwhelming public outcry about it the way you would expect. And I think a lot of that can come down to stigma. Mm -hmm. The way that we see drug users in our society and the way that the media tends to portray drug use. And the language we use when we talk about them. In researching for this episode, I came across a podcast called Crackdown, which covers drugs and this crisis made by drug users and drug researchers. It's a really cool show because it actually takes you into the world of the overdose crisis. Here's a snippet from the trailer. The first thing that you're going to hear is the voices of people carrying a man who's experiencing an overdose. You got an overdose. Careful, careful. Watch his head. Come on, you got to stay with us, bro. We used to put pictures on the wall at Van Du of the people that we lost. It's hard to keep up with it nowadays. This is my second overdose crisis. I was an injection heroin user all the way through the first one, here in Vancouver. In that last crisis, we realized no one was coming to save us, so we'd better save ourselves. And we organized. And we're still doing it. I got in touch with the host of the show, Garth Mullins, to hear about his thoughts on the way users are talked about in the media. The way we appear in popular culture and media representations is mostly you know, as a blank slate to inscribe all the bad ideas of society onto. And in the podcast, we try to do something different than that. We try to show people the real complex, multidimensional, super hilarious, intelligent human beings that we are. That is Garth, 
Rather than using the word addicted, Garth says about his own experience that he was wired to heroin, which I really liked. Mm -hmm. That mental image is sort of evocative, right? The idea that you're sort of like soldered onto a circuit board of heroin. Mm, Right, right. So nowadays, Garth uses methadone, which is an opioid medication prescribed either to treat pain or addiction. So like he says, he's been a user and he's been talking about drug use for a long time. So he had a lot to say about the language we use when we talk about drug use. Yeah, I suppose I've gone through phases of using lots of words. Like I went to Narcotics Anonymous meetings and at the beginning of those you have to say, hi, my name is Garth, I'm an addict, and everyone goes, hi, Garth. And just the sort of 12-step abstinence never worked out for me and I never really felt comfortable. It felt like something that a a doctor would say, uh, so I, I don't use that anymore. So let's start off by digging into that word addict. Okay, so in terms of etymology... Addict comes from a Latin verb that started as something that meant more or less to speak or to deliver. It was often used in a legal sense, but it evolved to mean something like to attach, to devote or yield oneself. So those don't necessarily have negative connotations. No, no, not at all. The attachment could be good or bad. It could be forced attachment or your own decision. There's also, by the way, a Latin noun addictus or addicti, which meant a person enslaved for debt or for theft. But anyway, Merriam-Webster pegs 1899 as the year of the first known usage of addict as a noun in the sense that we mean it now. The idea of like addict meaning slave is sort of a a chilling image for me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. People kind of use the word dependence interchangeably with addicted which I wanted to bring up because I think it's worth talking a bit about that. It actually has a really interesting and kind of controversial history. Mm. So substance dependence was a term that in 1947 was introduced to the DSM. That's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that the American Psychiatric Association uses to catalog mental disorders. So the association committee voted by a really narrow margin to replace the diagnosis of addiction with the diagnosis of substance dependence. And like, why was it so narrow? Well, so one side argued that addict is a pejorative word that stigmatizes the people diagnosed with it, whereas dependence sounds more neutral, less damaging Mm -hmm. of a label. But the other side thought that changing to dependence would erase the distinction between physical dependence and psychological addiction. Okay, what's the difference there? So an easy example is a person with diabetes. So uh, someone who's physically dependent on the proper dosage of insulin. They're not addicted to insulin. This sort of reminds me of articles I've seen about babies born to addicted parents. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like a baby can't be addicted. Yeah. A baby is dependent on something like heroin. Exactly. So did the committee actually decide to reclassify addiction as dependence? It did. And the motion won by just one vote. Oh, my God. Yeah. And a lot of people consider this to have been a huge mistake with really far-reaching consequences because it sort of did muddy the waters between these two really separate concepts of addiction and dependence. Okay. And I, I hear that. But I also know that there are a lot of studies that show that that stigma really does exist. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, there's a study published in the Journal of Drug and Alcohol Dependence. This came out in 2018. And it found that terms like addict and substance abuser held overwhelmingly negative associations. So that sounds <laughs> totally obvious. Yeah. But if you're using a word that is proven to hold negative connotations to label this huge population of people who are, like we said, dying in record numbers, 
it has consequences, right? It can be dehumanizing and can kind of reinforce stigmatizing ideas that addicts are to blame for their situation. Sure, but it's a sticky situation because is it worth avoiding a pejorative word if doing that reduces the precision of a clinical diagnosis for someone who needs help? It's it's a really hard one for sure. It takes me back to our first season on fat and how we talked about it's not the word that's the problem. Fat isn't an inherently bad word. It's just our association with the word fat that's messed up. Right. But stepping out of clinical terms Mm -hmm. for a second, activists and media outlets will often opt for the term drug user or people who use drugs instead. Totally. Garth and I talked about that as well. And we've learned a lot from other civil rights struggles. You know, uh, people with disabilities or people of color, people who are fighting for their own rights, fighting for the space for their humanity to exist, have recognized that you have to remind people, hey, uh, I'm a human, I'm a person right here. And uh, sometimes language triggers you to do that. People who use drugs is a perfect example of person first or people first language. Which is like a concept from disability activism, Mm -hmm. sort of like Garth said. Exactly. It's a kind of etiquette that always puts the person before the diagnosis to avoid marginalizing populations with disability or illness. The idea is to avoid referring to a person by a noun or an adjective and letting that define them. So not a diabetic, but a person with diabetes. Not a depressive, but a person with depression. Yeah. Garth and I spoke about that as well. And Garth had a really nice metaphor for how that actually functions in conversation. And maybe even the term people who use drugs is a little clunky. But it's that clunkiness. that That's kind of what you want to do to someone's brain is like, like those uh, rumble strips, you know, mostly on the highways and the prairies. They're like, you're asleep. Wake up. People who use drugs are people, you know. <laughs> I love that. Me too. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, this thought actually also reminded me of our episode on the word native when our guest Phelan Johnson said that the word indigenous sort of has like a foreign quality. So in a lot of mouths, it takes like an extra second to think like indigenous. You have to think about the word. And that little moment of thought can kind of rewire your thinking. Right. Person First Language started being used by a bunch of advocacy groups around the 80s, and it's especially linked to AIDS activism. Hmm. So in 1983, during the AIDS epidemic, there was this huge, huge landmark conference in Denver where people with AIDS flew in from all over the U.S. to meet and draft this list of recommendations called the Denver Principles. Mm -hmm. And the first principle, uh, I'll read it for you here, it says, we condemn attempts to label us as, quote, victims, a term that implies defeat, and we are only occasionally patients, a term that implies passivity, helplessness, and dependence upon the care of others. We are people with AIDS. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Kind of makes me want to do an episode on the word like victim versus survivor. Mm, oh, yeah, that's a big one. Another kind of binary that you hear a lot. Mm-hmm. But this conversation about people first language does not mean that Garth and his friends talk about themselves that way. There are really important distinctions here about words that Garth and his community might use and words that we should use. Here's Garth. You know, I, I myself call, I'll call myself a dope fiend or drug user or whatever it is. What we call ourselves is probably different than what people who are not in the life and have never had that experience should say. Because if it's not coming out of my mouth or, or someone who's had my experience, it's probably going to be pejorative. You know, you, you kind of talk to each other like, yeah, we're junkies or whatever, but You know the word carries a lot of baggage. You know to ears outside of the community it means something different, and you want to find a way 
to call yourself something else. On the show, we've talked a lot before about reappropriation, reclamation, in-group versus out-group labeling. Which means a word that's applied from outsiders of the group or a word that's applied by the group themselves. Right. And the media is a really powerful out-group that can influence how people see drug users. There's been a really big push in recent years for journalists to avoid using the word addict when they're reporting on this topic. I mean, the way, the way people think about the world is largely constructed by those narratives. So there are real human costs to it. If we're thought of as scumbags and zombies, then that makes everything much harder. No one's going to hire someone they think is a zombie. You know, like our society decides who to cast out, who's a criminal, who's an outsider, based on those words. I guess when I started using drugs, addict might have been the progressive or more polite way to say it, because everything else was worse. Like, junkie and worse was just what was available. And... You know, that was a long time ago, and over my lifetime or, or my life as a drug user, people have started drug user organizing. So the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users started about uh, 22 years ago. And so we really reached out to lots of journalists, and we tried to, you know, punch into the mainstream about how we were covered a little bit. And I, th I think that a generation of journalists has come up in Vancouver and in Canada who are starting to see things a little differently. So we don't get uniform backlash coverage as before. And there's other words that have sort of fallen out of favor with media sources as well. So think about the word substance abuse that mm -hmm. we hear pretty commonly, right? Yeah. Kenneth Tupper from BC Centre on Substance Abuse pointed out in a CBC interview, quote, child abuse, spousal abuse, animal abuse, elder abuse. In each case, the thing in front of the word abuse is who or what is being harmed. But when it comes to drug abuse, who or what is being harmed? Certainly not the drugs. I've never thought about that before, but yeah, yeah. I think it's always such a good clue when there's a pattern like that that's broken. It's a red flag that something else is going on. Totally. And there's been research about this phenomenon as well. Kelly and Westroff in 2010 uh, released a study looking at that exact phrase, substance abuse, and they gave clinicians. So we're talking about doctors here. Scenarios in which they were referred a patient who is either a substance abuser or had a substance abuse disorder. So that's like a really subtle linguistic shift, right? Mm -hmm. But the physicians we're talking about rated those who were called substance abusers as more blameworthy and suggested more punitive measures over treatment options. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a great example of person first language actually doing heavy lifting. And it sounds so finicky, right? It sounds mm -hmm. like you're being kind of nitpicky. Yeah, but it's incredibly important. It's such a small yet powerful choice to make. Mm -hmm. I actually edited for a while at a legal publishing house. Mm -hmm. And in our house style guide, there was a similar rule to never write the phrase clean record um, when you're talking about someone's criminal record, but to use the phrase clear record instead. Oh. So in the same way, referring to drug users or their toxicology results as clean or dirty can be really harmful and really lean into those stereotypes. Totally. And mm -hmm. it's like one letter different too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because of studies like this, places like CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, no longer use those words. So they instead will refer to people as patients with positive or negative toxicology screens. And to dip into uh, style guides even more for a second. <laughs> Karina. Everyone's favorite topic. <laughs> am I right? Am I right? <laughs> Um, the 2017 edition of the Associated Press, that's the style book used by American journalists, removed a lot of this uh, phrasing as well. So mm -hmm. their updated recommendations instruct journalists to 
Avoid words like alcoholic, addict, user, and abuser unless they're in quotations or names of organizations, and instead choose phrasing like he was addicted, people with heroin addiction, or he used drugs. So again, that person-first language. And here in Canada, um, while they don't mention drug users specifically, the Canadian Press Style Guide has the following rule, quote, be accurate, clear, and sensitive when describing a person with a disability, handicap, illness, or disease. They are people first. Their disability is only one part of their humanity, and most would say it is the least important part. That's pretty interesting. I like that. Okay, so thus far in the argument, we've got users, we've got researchers, we have style guides all in agreement that the word addict is bad. So we can just throw the word out, right? 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 No. Uh, <laughs> no, is that in too fact, cute? no. I, I think, think it's, it's just cute enough. <laughs> but as with any word that's used to label a big group of people, it is more complicated than that. And some people really embrace the word addict. We reached one self-professed addict, an actor and a comic, Deborah Kimmett, by phone. It's one of my identifications. Like, I'm female, I'm 61, I'm addict. It's just part of the fabric that makes up myself. Of course, I quit drinking because I was addicted to alcohol, uh, 100%. I was really glad. It was a freedom word. Like, oh, I'm addicted to alcohol. Once I put alcohol in my body, my mind changes, and I don't want to stop. So that's Deborah Kimmett. She's been sober for 32 years, but like you heard, she still refers to herself as an addict. And this is something that I was really interested in exploring about the word addict, that people use it even if they haven't used that substance in a decade or like in Deborah's case, three decades. Mm-hmm. It's hard to think of other words that stick around quite the same way. Totally. So Deborah has managed several addictions in her life, but she has a particular relationship to alcohol, as you'll hear. Early in recovery, I really studied a lot of Eastern philosophy because I think I was looking for an answer outside of traditional Catholic religion, which I was raised in. And one of the stories I came across was this guy, there's a guy in the um, market and he's just eating one hot pepper after another. And his teacher comes up to him and says, why are you doing that? And he goes, I'm trying to find a sweet one. And I thought, yeah, we eat these hot peppers, our eyes are running, we're just torturing ourselves, trying to find the taste that once solved the problem. Like I used to always say, I'm drinking my way back to 1976. There was one night in 1976 where alcohol worked for me, and that pepper story kind of says the same thing. You know, it's like you're trying to get a feeling or a sensation back, and you'll kill yourself trying to get back to it. That's really powerful. I really like that story. And it's a really, like, great metaphor there, hey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In recovery, Deborah learned to frame her addiction as a disease, which is a pretty widely accepted concept now, right? It's also not a new idea. The American Medical Association classified addiction as a disease way back in 1956. Mm-hmm. And there are scientists out there who argue that our view should be a little bit more nuanced than just a disease concept. But regardless, it is a really important step away from the idea that drug users are immoral or lack willpower. But on the other hand, which is something we say a lot in this episode, on the other hand, (laughs) um, classing it as a disease uh, can also be seen as a stigmatizing move. Yeah, like we wouldn't talk about other diseases in that same way. You wouldn't say like, I am a cancer. Yeah. Here's Deborah. I think when I heard the word in a disease framework, it helped me not feel ashamed that I drank too much. It was just a relief. 
it wasn't a morally bankrupt thing, like I wasn't a bad person, I was a sick person. I found that very liberating. Yeah, and for Deborah, labeling herself as addicted or as an addict was a, an important step in her recovery and in her work helping others. Um, and other people have said the same thing. I, I read an op-ed by Kevin Riordan. He's a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And in this piece, he said that calling himself an addict helped him, quote, face the facts. Here's Deborah. I'll say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a recovered alcoholic. I'll say that because I just think I don't know who it's going to help. But I've also worked on the on the edge where people's heads on fire and like I'm grateful the word exists for them and I can say you know what you're an addict you need help and so sometimes the simplicity of a word cuts to the truth and the person can go treat that thing so the word is actually what they need to hear yeah and if the word is helping people in their personal journey towards recovery then who are we to say not to use it yeah, I don't think we can say what someone should call themselves. But obviously, it's important to think critically about the words we're using when it comes to journalism or policy or anything else. Totally. And I, I kind of like the word people who use drugs because it encompasses all people who use drugs, right? Like mm -hmm. we talked to just two people for this episode and they had opposite experiences with that word addict. Yeah, I think this episode is unique in the fact that we had a like kind of a perfect 50-50 for and against discussion of one word that people feel really strongly about. Yeah, because anecdotally, the word has had a lot of positive impact in people's lives. But there are also bodies of research out there that show that the word is not appropriate for a lot of situations. And speaking of research, just one more study here. Mm -hmm. I know I've <laughs> given you a lot of studies today. Um, but this study was published in the American Journal of Public Health from 2018. And they sent a survey to people all around the U.S. and found that 45% of respondents supported legalizing overdose prevention sites and only 29% supported safe consumption sites, uh. which are the same thing. <laughs> and that's 16% less support, mm -hmm. which is huge based on just the little change between overdose prevention site or safe consumption site. Yeah, 16% could be the difference between this going forward or not. Totally. And, and just this past April, coming back to home, Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario currently, announced that his government was cutting funding from several overdose prevention sites and referred to the new model that they're putting forward as consumption and treatment services. Which I'm sure was very intentional. So using that study as a template, that subtle name change could make 16% of Ontarians lose support for these sites that are essential uh, in harm reduction. Mm -hmm. And there's just one other word I want to get into that we use when we talk about drug use that Garth mentioned that really drove home how urgent this situation is for me. Here's Garth. I guess the very term overdose crisis or overdose emergency, this last, uh, just before we taped the podcast, there were 22 demonstrations across the country on a national day of action on the overdose crisis. And I, I just think this is the third one I've been to. Um, you know, this is actually the second overdose crisis that I've been through. Uh, it's the second official declaration of a public health emergency. The, the first one I was through was in Vancouver. The second one's in BC here. But can you really call something a crisis or an emergency if it just keeps going on and on and you actually have the means to end it, but you don't? And that's a really good point, right? Mm -hmm. Like, can you still call something a crisis or an emergency if it's been going on for more than three years? Yeah, like an emergency is an emergency. Uh, what gets depressing is when an emergency just kind of 
fades into what people call the new normal, right? Mm -hmm. But the positive that we can see here is that there are some really incredible activists out there across the country working to change that. And there are some really compelling research projects like Garth's podcast, Crackdown, listen to it, that are working to end that stigma and to tell the stories of drug users that we do not hear. Right. Yeah, that is a bright spot that people are working hard on this. Totally. We always end the show with a land acknowledgement, and in talking about drugs in Canada, it's especially important to highlight the specific ways that addiction affects Indigenous communities. Totally. In BC, surveys have shown that Indigenous folks are fatally overdosing five times more than non-Indigenous people. And experts suggest that this can be tied to colonial traumas like residential schools, the 60s scoop, and ongoing violence. Mm -hmm. And before the legalization of uh, marijuana, Indigenous folks were also far more likely to be arrested for possession and as a result are vastly overrepresented in our prison system. Mm -hmm. There are also so many Indigenous activists and Indigenous-led groups that are leading progress in the field of reducing harm. So as we acknowledge that our show is recorded on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, we also want to acknowledge the ways that addiction continues to affect these communities. We'd like to thank Garth Mullins and Deborah Kimmett for their interviews. Word Bomb is produced by me, Pippa Johnstone. And me, Karina Palmatesta. You can follow the show at Word Bomb Podcast on Instagram and at tvo.org slash wordbomb. And finally, thank you to Hannah Sung, manager of podcasts at TVO. Thanks for listening.